You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So today is a very special day, at least for me, on Derms and Conditions. I have with me Dr. Lisa Swanson, who is at Ada West Dermatology in Boise, Idaho, where she's been for about a year and a half. Uh, She's a pediatric dermatologist, and for about 10 years before that, she was in private practice in Colorado. So if you ever heard Lisa speak and present, you'd be thinking of her as one of these pediatric dermatologists that's at this academic center because she's so smart and so good at what she does. But she's in the trenches. She's in the trenches seeing patients. you know, not that the academicians don't, but she's in the trenches pretty much in private practice dermatology. So Lisa, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Right here in the studio. So you know that I nicknamed you the Adele of dermatology, and I think you were surprised. And that's because, you know, you got to remember, Adele came, would come out with a song or a couple of songs, and they would just get go really high up there and then she'd be gone for like five or six years and then she'd come back and do it again and she was at the top of the chart she's the first female uh, artist on the billboard uh, hot 100 history to have three simultaneous top 10 singles so you're getting close to her because you spoke at the fall clinical and we immediately got rave reviews then you disappeared for a little while and then you came back at the fall clinical uh, a program that we had for physician assistants and nurse practitioners and immediately the e- email started coming in she's the greatest she's the best so you have two top 10 singles so today is going to be your third all right, wow. all right? oh my gosh so the pre- that's amazing the pressure is on so <laughs> we all have a lot of questions when we see uh, you know children in our practice those of us that are not pediatric dermatologists, and I'm sure the challenges are there for all of us. So I'd like to start with something that I saw you talk about in how you manage warts, because warts are obviously difficult in everyone. A lot of our treatments are uncomfortable and painful. So you can tell me how you manage. Can you tell me how you manage warts in children? Yes, of course, of course. Thank you so much, Dr. Del Ross. And I just want to thank you so much for including me in this podcast. So happy to be here. I listened to all the previous episodes in preparation so I could get myself ready. And the compliment about uh, the Adele stuff is just uh, too big for words. Um, uh, really makes me feel so special. Thank Are you going to so start much. crying? I know, crying? I'm going to start crying. And it just started. <laughs> the podcast just started. I'm already in tears. But thank you so much. It really means the world to me. And I appreciate it so much. So for warts. So my absolute favorite treatment for warts is a prescription topical medicine. It goes by the name Wart Peel. It's made by a pharmacy in Iowa called Nucara, N-U-C-A-R-A. And it's a compounded mix of 5-fluorouracil and salicylic acid. And it's in a proprietary medium as well. So uh, Nucara has a patent not only on wart peel, but also on the vehicle that the medicines ride in. And there's truly something special about this combination. Wart peel works 98% of the time. It doesn't hurt. Um, it uh, typically works fast, two to three weeks, and you've got your warts gone. And it's what I do, you know, 95% of the time when I'm seeing warts in clinic. 
if I'm not doing wart peel or if wart peel fails, the rare times that it fails, I'll often do candida antigen injections. Um, but then you kind of have to find a wart that's in a non-ouchy location to make that work. But wart peel is really my go-to. So are we talking about common, can you describe the type of warts you're using the wart peel on? And if there's any locations where you don't use it? So I would pretty much use wart peel for almost any wart in any location, but in some locations I will modify the instructions a little bit. So it's great for hands and feet where warts are so common and they can use it just as described and as instructed with a little application at bedtime with sticky tape on top and the product comes with the sticky tape. If I'm treating like flat warts with it where they're on the face and they're teeny, I won't treat any near the eyelids, nose, or mouth, but if they're on the forehead or the cheek. You can use wart peel in those. I just tell them use a teeny dab with a Q-tip Monday, Wednesday, Friday at bedtime and don't use the sticky tape. The other thing that's really nice about wart peel, because it contains 5-fluorouracil, you do get a little bit of an activation of the immune system response. And so if you see a child with warts on their hands and they also have warts on their face, you can start out by just treating the ones on their hands and the ones on their face should go away too. So they get that secondary distal response from an immunologic uh, stimulation. What are they going to visibly see? You know, so are they going to get red and crusty? or And then what's the time course that they will typically follow? And how do they decide when to stop? What do you bring them back to you to see, to tell them when to stop? Good question. So with the wart peel, it tends to make the warts kind of white and peely and kind of wet looking. Um, it doesn't tend to irritate. It tends to be a painless process. And in fact, if patients call and complain about pain with application, that tends to mean that the wart has been adequately treated. And basically the medicine is now being used on eroded skin. So I'll tell them to stop. Chances are they've done a good job clearing the warts. I don't do any follow-up for wart peel. 98% of the time it takes care of them, so I'm not following up. In terms of when to stop the treatment, sometimes it's pretty obvious. You can see the wart getting smaller and smaller and flatter and flatter, and you're like, okay, I think this is a good time to stop. If it hurts, that's a good time to stop. And if you're not sure, go ahead and stop for a few days. Let the skin kind of heal and recover, and then see if you need to restart. Okay. So I just want you to know, I just texted my sister and told her that the Adele of dermatology told me I asked a really good question. So, you know, I don't hear that very much. So, so I want to ask you that that's very helpful because the, the warts are very challenging. Is there a limit to how many, how many you'll treat at any one time? Let's say they, they come in with these multiple warts on the hands. Right. There's not a limit in my opinion. However, I think just the feasibility of using it on so many warts, once you get past like 20 or 30, it's just so much work for the patient and their family. Um, and so if patients come in and they have 20, 30, 40 warts, I'll tell them you don't have to treat every single one. Focus on the biggest, focus on the ones that bother you the most, and we'll trigger that immune system to get rid of the rest. Okay, sounds great. So now the scenario is that it's a parent, usually a mother, not always, but usually a mother, comes in with their seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, could be a, a child, and they're concerned about moles. And, you know, they're reading about moles. There's not necessarily any any history of melanoma, but they don't always know the difference. You know, the grandparent had a skin cancer or whatever, and they're being vigilant, which is good, 
earlier in life, but they're starting to point out these different nevi. So sometimes you'll see these like fried egg appearing ones behind the ears or on the scalp, or they'll have a few scattered what looks like junctional nevi. But, you know, but how do you handle that in terms of educating them? Because you don't want them to, I don't, I know I don't want them to feel like, oh, you didn't really need to come in because you want them to be, be observant. So how do you handle that situation and what advice do you give? And can I tag on to that? What do you tell them about sunscreens? In the oh, children? yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay, so when people come in concerned about moles, one of the biggest concerns that parents raise is that they've noticed that this mole in their child is changing. Because we have really hammered into people, be aware of the changing mole, check your own skin, let us know if anything is acting fishy. And so parents will come in saying their child's mole is changing. Now that's important, but I'll tell the family that it's not as important in a child with a changing mole as it is in an adult. Because in kids, we expect their moles to change. It's not like we just pop out with all our spots the way they're going to be. There's a normal evolution that takes place as the mole kind of settles into its long-term appearance. And so as long as we look at a mole and its features are normal, we don't have to worry so much about a change in a child's mole because we expect them to change. The moles on the scalp that I see every single day are these eclipse moles. And they can either have a darker center with a lighter rim or a lighter center darker rim. And they're completely benign and harmless. Where there's one, there's often several. So don't be surprised if you see more than one. And parents will come in because they have just noticed it and they're freaked out about it because it's irregular in its shape. It's got its two-toned coloring. We can reassure patients and their families about these eclipse moles. These eclipse moles are well studied in pediatric dermatology. They are benign and they can be left alone. And sometimes if you biopsy them, you'll get a mildly atypical readout and then you're kind of stuck because you're like, oh my gosh, am I going to excise this mole on this child's head? We believe in pediatric dermatology that these scalp moles in kids are a somewhat special site uh, in dermatopathology that's maybe not being recognized as that. And so you often get these mildly atypical readouts. I would encourage people to leave eclipse moles alone. They're okay. You can reassure the family. And then um, once I've made sure that a mole is normal, I will often discuss, kind of broach the topic of how bothered they are by their mole. Do they want to consider removal just for removal's sake? You know, first strategy is always to make sure the mole is okay. And then if the mole is okay, do they want to do anything about it just because it annoys them? And then for sunscreens, I have a list of my favorite things that I hand out to my patients, and it has several sunscreens on it. I think the most important thing is choosing a sunscreen that's zinc and or titanium based. They're the physical blockers. They work well. They're safe. They don't irritate sensitive skin. Uh, they're, help, they're okay for coral reefs, and it kind of avoids some of the controversy going on in the chemical sunscreen world. Um, so I often will recommend those. Sounds great. But that that's very, very helpful. Another situation, okay? They come in with their child and that has a hemangioma, relative, you know, young child that has a hemangioma. And they're an isolated lesion. And I know there's a lot of talk about utilizing things like timolol and propranolol, topical versus oral. So can you give us the Lisa Swanson overview of... Uh, of managing hemangiomas in young children. 
Definitely, definitely. So, I mean, basically, if you really want to treat a hemangioma, if the hemangioma is a worrisome hemangioma and you really need to get it better, you'll want to use propranolol. In general, there are three categories of hemangiomas. There are superficial, which are just the strawberries. There's deep, where you have kind of a blue bump under the skin. And there's combined, where you have a blue bump with a strawberry on top. And topical timolol only works for the superficial kind, which often don't need treatment really anyway. And so the most common situation that I'm using topical timolol is a family that really wants to treat their hemangioma. Medically speaking, their hemangioma would be okay not having treatment. And it's not in an area like an eyelid. It's not compressing or something like that, correct? Correct. Correct. So if a hemangioma really needs treatment, meaning it's really big or it's in an important location like eyelid, nose, or lip, or diaper area, or if it's ulcerating, or if it's a big dome-shaped hemangioma that even when they involute, they leave behind fibrofatty tissue. So if there's a hemangioma that for these various reasons really needs treatment, I'm definitely going to encourage propranolol. And propranolol is something that I really, whenever I give CME talks, I really try to empower um, dermatologists and even primary care doctors to feel comfortable prescribing propranolol. There are fewer than 400 pediatric dermatologists in the entire country. We can't treat all the hemangiomas that need treatment. And so I really try to empower people at the conferences that I speak at to get comfortable with propranolol. You're talking, or, you're talking oral propranolol now. Yes, oral yes. Propranolol. Yeah. And all you really need is to prescribe it two or three times and you'll get so comfortable with it and you'll see how well it works and you'll be sold. It's just kind of getting over that hump. And so when I'm giving uh, talks at conferences, I commonly will tell people, email me. I will coach you through the prescribing process. I will tell you everything you need to tell the family. I will calculate the dose with you. I will get you to the point where you feel comfortable. And so anybody listening to this podcast, definitely feel free to email me, um, lisaswansonmd at gmail.com, pretty easy. And I will walk you through every step of that process. We typically use a dose of two milligrams per kilogram per day divided twice a day. And the number one most important counseling thing with propranolol is to tell families to always give it with food. Propranolol can make patients hypoglycemic. And so if you're always giving it with food, that's not going to happen. And when propranolol was kind of a new thing, any pediatric cardiologist I ran into, I would ask them about it like, hey, what do you think? Am I, you know, are we being stupid prescribing propranolol? Are we overstepping our field of expertise? And one pediatric cardiologist said it, I think, in the best way possible. He said, in the doses you guys use to treat babies with hemangiomas, I would prescribe propranolol over the phone to a baby I had never met, and I would never follow up. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty that's a pretty strong statement. Yeah, right? Yes. Yes. So, yes. So I, I've already uh, emailed you about five yeah. different patients, and I'm, I'm sure your email box is gonna is gonna explode. But that's that. So what about if they're a diabetic? Um, if Well, so first of all, diabetes in a newborn baby, you know, typically we're using propranolol up to the age of a year of age. So seeing diabetes in that young is actually pretty uncommon. Um, and so most of these babies with hemangiomas are otherwise healthy little babies that just have a hemangioma. So what about if it's the hemangioma is actively changing, mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's growing, right? Mm -hmm. Is there, is there an intervention that that's more critical where you have to get the, the, the baby referred or 
you know, what's the situation if it's an expanding or growing hemangioma? So most of the hemangiomas I see, you know, they, they tend to grow until a baby is 9 to 12 months of age. So most of the babies I'm seeing with hemangiomas, they are in their active state of growth. And that's really the period of time that propranolol works the best. So growing hemangiomas are right in my wheelhouse. I don't have to refer to anybody. I'm comfortable handling that. And, and I simply start propranolol and get the hemangioma better. Sounds good. About how long does it take before they see, start seeing a response? So they'll see a difference in the hemangioma within the first 24 to 48 hours. The color changes and it kind of deflates. Okay. So deflation. So sounds like something that Tom Brady would be able to feel very yeah. comfortable with, right? Yeah. Can't knock Tom Brady. The guy. You, you talk about somebody like Adele. Tom Brady is, you know, is untouchable. Yeah. So I just want to. I just want to end uh, to see if you have, you know. What, what's your most recent tip that you found that you could pass on to others recently or, you know, within the last year or so that say, wow, this is a great observation. I want to tell other people about it. Yeah, yeah. I think what I've noticed, so I treat a lot of patients with atopic dermatitis and atopic dermatitis really has a tremendous burden of disease, not only for the patient, but for the family too. And in my conversations with patients and their families about the treatment options available, I've started to phrase the conversation a little bit differently. All of the comorbidities of atopic dermatitis that we're learning more and more about, the atopic triad and beyond to things like eosinophilic esophagitis, growth issues, osteoporosis, osteopenia, cardiovascular risk, ADHD, depression, all of these things that kids with atopic dermatitis have a higher risk for. All of those things are basically the side effects of not controlling their child's atopic dermatitis. And it's really important to empower these patients and their families to really adequately treat the atopic dermatitis. I think a lot of the parents that I see, they like the idea of going on a systemic therapy like Dupixent. It honestly helps to make their life easier. And sometimes I find that they're a little bit afraid to... They feel somewhat selfish to put their child on a therapy because they view it as helping themselves too. And so really empowering these parents to consider the best option for their for their children um, that's going to make their child's life better and their life better and focusing on the importance of treating and the, the good that they're doing for their child. So what about, because you know, I, I find that when we're talking about systemic treatments that we started out being approved in adults and you know, adults, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be concerned about myself, but I'm going to be less concerned than thinking about my grandchild in my case, that's going to be going on something that they're going to be on long-term. Is it immunosuppressive? What effects is going to have later getting them over that hump of, of the fear because some of the parents are going to have a fear. So how do you address that with them? I think two things. Number one, I'm never trying to convince a patient and their family to do something in particular. That's not my role. And I'm just there to tell them about the options. And I tell them, I'm the navigator, you're the captain. It's my job to tell you which ways we can go. It's your job to choose which way we end up going. Um, and so I always use that rule of thumb in my conversations with families. It, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I'm just trying to show you what's out there uh, and the different ways that we can help your kiddo. So, but the navigator, right, yes. will often say, yeah, I'm, these are your options, but I would suggest if it was me, I would do 
the following. Do you suggest to them what you would do if it was yourself or your own child, for example? So I do, but I usually save that for if they ask me, like, oh, hey, what would you do? I really try to present options um, pretty ob- objectively because, uh, again, I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm just trying to show them the different ways we can approach the problem. Um, and so some families will say, oh, well, what would you do? And then I'll chime in with my with my personal opinion. But, yeah. but yeah. You, you you have to admit, Lisa, they're, they're, you're hoping cert- that they're going to pick certain options that you know are better for them, correct? Definitely. Definitely. Yes, yes, yes. And I kind of present them and kind of cross my fingers and hope they choose correctly sometimes. (laughs) Well, you know, we were wondering if you were going to cry, but I'm going to start crying because we're we're coming to a close here and we'll, we'll... I definitely want to have you back because you're just a a pleasure to talk to and you have some very valuable practical information. So thanks so much for being with us today on Derms and Conditions. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.